1: Hello, Joe. Do you like scary movies? Uh, Definitely, especially around Halloween. How about scary TV shows based on characters from Marvel Comics? That sounds right up my alley. Well, now you can binge all 10 episodes of Marvel Television's dark, mature series Hellstrom, only on Hulu, which is sponsoring this episode. I've been dying for some on-screen superhero action, and this supernatural thriller about Damon and Anna Hallstrom's exploration into their complicated family history will make for some chilling television this Halloween weekend. Yeah, the story begins with the estranged siblings coming together to save their mother, using their own particular skills to unravel a mystery involving their serial killer father. It has a great cast, it's action-packed, and it has some dry humor and with its horror leanings, it's unlike any other Marvel property on television. So if you like superheroes and things that go bump in the night, do not miss out on watching the Hulu original series Hellstrom. Start binging it this evening. On with the show. Hi and welcome to the Dynamic Duel Podcast, a weekly show where we review superhero films and debate the superiority between Marvel and DC by comparing their characters in stat-based battle simulations. I'm Marvelous Joe. And I'm his twin brother, Johnny DC. And this, guys, is our 199th episode. Next episode is the Big 200, where we pit the JSA team against the Fantastic Four. And in lead up to that, we decided to review 2015's Fantastic Four film, also known as Fant4Stick. Right, this will be the third Fantastic Four film that we've reviewed so far. I actually saw it for the first time this morning. I'm so sorry. And I've always heard that it was bad, and you guys weren't wrong. Yeah, it's 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 not a great movie. We'll talk all about it later on in this episode. Before that, we're going to get into the comic book movie news from the past week. Just one news item regarding Zack Snyder's Justice League, and that Jared Leto as the Joker and Joe Manganiello as Deathstroke will be returning for that. As always, we list our segment times in our episode description, so feel free to check out the show notes if you want to skip ahead to a particular topic. Just a quick reminder, guys, to please subscribe to our show if you haven't already. And if you have, please help us grow our podcast audience by leaving a quick rating or review on whatever platform you're listening to us on or by sharing us with your fellow DC and Marvel fans. We want to give a huge thank you to Boamyard on Apple Podcasts for leaving us a review. Big thank you to Bomeyard for leaving the kind words. Um, Guys, if you didn't know this already, there's kind of like an unspoken contract between us, the podcasters, and you, the listener. In that if you've listened to five or more episodes of this show without leaving us a rating or a review, you're essentially stealing from the podcast. What? (laughs) I just want you guys to know. There's quite a few podcasts I need to start reviewing, apparently. (laughs) But with that out of the way, quick to the no prize. So a No Prize is an award that Marvel used to give out up until the 90s to fans. Our version, the Dynamic Duel No Prize, is a digital award that we post on social media that I personally draw for those who we feel gave the best answer to our question of the week. Last week's question tied into the news that Michael B. Jordan would be producing a Static Shock film. So we posed the question, who would you cast as Virgil Hawkins, aka Static, in the Static Shock movie? And we didn't get a whole lot of answers for this one, I think mainly because Jonathan forgot, again, to post the question of the week to our Facebook page in time. Don't blame me. (laughs) But uh, we we got enough for uh, some solid honorable mentions and, of course, the no prize winner. Our first honorable mention goes to Caleb Albers, who said that he knows that the actor is a little bit older, but he thinks Shamik Moore would be a decent fit for Static, because he looks like he's on the younger side, and he could play younger, and obviously, he has a good voice for it. If you guys don't know, Shamik Moore was the voice of Miles Morales in the Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse movie, and he's a phenomenal actor. He was also the star of the movie Dope, which got amazing reviews. He's a great actor. He's only 25 years old, so I think he could still pull it off. Yeah, I mean, there's a few people in their mid, even to late 20s who could still play teenagers or at least, you know, people will buy it. Look at Tom Welling in Smallville, you know? Yeah, that guy flunked a lot. (laughs) Our next honorable mention goes to John Spees, who said that he thinks Tyrell Jackson Williams has a good look for static. Now, Tyrell Jackson Williams was the star of a Disney XD series called Lab Rats. And he also played a younger Chris Rock in the Everybody Hates Chris show and he's still in his early 20s. I think he could pull it off as well. Great pick. Our final honorable mention goes to Michael Haggerty who said that he would cast Miles Brown from the television show Blackish. Now other people suggested Marcus Scribner from Blackish, but we think that Miles Brown is in the better age range for the character than Marcus Scribner. Yeah, yeah he's more age appropriate. Yeah, Michael said that Miles definitely has the comedy slash dramedy acting chops. And he also suggested that Michael B. Jordan could play Ebon in the movie. Yeah, I mean, he'd be playing another villain role like he did with Killmonger in the MCU. But I could totally see him playing that character. Yeah, which I think is great because I wouldn't want to see Michael B. Jordan not be in this movie, you know, considering he's producing and back in the day, he would have made an amazing Virgil Hawkins himself. Good answer. Before we give the winner of this week's No Prize, we want to give a quick thank you to everyone who reached out to us with an answer, including Dustin Belcom, Harrison Fox, and Richard McGrew. But the winners of this week's No Prize are Miggy Medingian, Jeff Miles Jr., and Jacob Bell, because all three of them gave the answer of Caleb McLaughlin, who you may know from Netflix's Stranger Things. Not only is Caleb McLaughlin the right age range for the role, but I just love him on Stranger Things. He's a really good actor, and I think he could definitely hold the dramatic weight for the role. Now Maggie chose him because Boss Logic, I guess, created some artwork with Caleb in the role as Virgil. And actually that artwork is really cool. The costume that Boss Logic designed is amazing. Yeah, I like his hoverboard. I really hope DC goes with a similar look to this artwork. Jeff Miles Jr. said that he thinks Caleb McLaughlin was born to become the static shock we know and love. Jeff in his answer also said that he thinks Malcolm Jamal Warner, you know, Theo from The Cosby Show, would be an amazing adult static shock. And lastly, Jacob Bell mentioned Caleb is the right age and has some dramatic chops to him. So, congrats once again to Maggie Madigan, Jeff Miles Jr., and Jacob Bell. You win this week's no prize. If you, the listener, want a shot at winning your own no prize, stay tuned to later on this episode when we'll be asking another question of the week. And now that that's done, on to the news. <laughs> Okay, so last week we learned, surprise, both Jared Leto and Joe Manganiello are returning as the Joker and Deathstroke, respectively, for the upcoming Snyder Cut of the Justice League film that will be on HBO Max next year. That's really surprising news. Super surprising news. I feel like this is the kind of news that people either really loved to hear or were like, (laughs) no! Specifically referring to Jared Leto. Because the Suicide Squad film was so divisive, particularly his character. Yeah, we've all heard from David Ayer that Jared Leto's role as the Joker was cut severely within the Suicide Squad film. And I think it's pretty evident through watching that film and watching the trailers that there was a lot of his performance left on the cutting room floor. I mean, watching the film, Jared Leto's performance is just atrocious. It's not very good. (laughs) But we've all been banking on this idea that perhaps there was a better role for him in the movie that we just never got to see. So this will be kind of an interesting test of that theory. Will he show up in Zack Snyder's Justice League and be every bit of the weird-ass gangster that he was in Suicide Squad? Or will he continue to play him just like a weird ass, you know, and send <laughs> all of his castmates use condoms and weird shit like that? Oh, gosh. No, he needs to not do that this time. I think Jared Leto will do a better job in the role, personally. I do hope they give him a different look. I hope they get rid of the tattoos. Just say that all of the tattoos were a joke. It could be in character. I don't know. (laughs) But no, I have full confidence that Zack Snyder will do a better job with the character than David Ayer did. Do you think Jared Leto's appearance in Justice League will further stoke the call for a David Ayer cut of Suicide Squad? Possibly. I still don't think that's something we're ever going to get, though. As I've said before, if fans want a better version of Suicide Squad... We're already getting that with James Gunn. I do have to say though that whatever Jared Leto does with the role, it will be in the shadow of Joaquin Phoenix as the Joker in his film. Because he won an Academy Award for that role. Yeah, he has a lot to live up to. Not so much for Joe Manganello. We've never seen someone else in the Deathstroke role on the silver screen before besides him. You know, there was Manu Bennett from the Arrow show, and there was Asai Morales from the Titan show, and they both did great as Slade. But Joe Manganiello's version will be like the de facto version that goes up against, you know, Ben Affleck's Batman and all the other characters in the DCEU. So it's going to be something special. And I think he's going to do a really good job with the role. Well, it's hard to say what the role will be, but we know that it will be bigger than just the cameo appearance that he made at the end of the theatrical version of Justice League, because he's currently filming additional photography. Yeah, I think we know that the end scene with him and Lex Luthor was filmed by Joss Whedon. So I'm really curious to see what Zack Snyder had planned for him. We knew it was going to lead into Ben Affleck's Batman film that never got made. So I'm really curious to see if it's going to be like an Injustice League thing or something else entirely. We do know that the Snyder Cut will be four episodes long on HBO Max, and I'm wondering if like a lot of the fourth episode will deal with the Injustice League. Maybe Jared Leto's Joker will be a part of that. Oh, that would be fascinating if that's what both of them are filming right now have we heard word if Jesse Eisenberg is returning to the role for reshoots? I don't recall that, but I would be surprised if he wasn't. I would watch a spin-off movie of the Injustice League with those actors in those roles. That would be cool. And you know, the rumor is that if the Snyder Cut does well, it'll spin off a ton of other projects for HBO Max exclusively. So that's great to hear. But speaking of the Injustice League, that brings us to our question of the week. Which one villain from the DCEU would you most like to see join the Injustice League? Yeah, and this question assumes that the two existing members of the League are Lex Luthor and Deathstroke. So out of the rest of the villains in the DCEU, who do you want to see join them most? Post your answer to our Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, or email us at dynamicduelpodcast at gmail.com. We'll pick our favorite answer and draw that person a Dynamic Duel no
0: prize that we'll
1: post to social
0: media. I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at Chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
1: But that does it for all the news from the past week. So let's get into our review for this episode, which is sponsored by Cufflinks.com. Right, we're currently running a contest giveaway with them, so listen to our last episode or visit us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter for information about that, because you could win either a Silk Batman or a Paisley Iron Man tie. They're both brand spanking new on the site, and honestly, I'm pretty jealous of whoever ends up winning that Batman silk tie, I'm not gonna lie. Cufflinks.com also sent us some of their products to review for you guys, so we're gonna quickly give you our impressions of their vintage Batman money clip and Black Panther tie bar. Now, this Batman money clip, it's so nice. I almost don't even want to use it like I don't feel worthy. I need to travel the world and learn all the martial arts, become a detective and get rich and then use it because it's just that cool. The clip is antique silver plated and has an enamel image of Batman comic art that looks like a Neil Adams rendition of Howard Porter's Batman. It's a good size, and it has a good weighty feel. Like, if only I had some cash to carry it in. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I don't carry cash too often. This makes me think I should. Like, just pull out cash and pretend I'm Batman rich. I'll go to the ATM, get a $100 bill, and just, like, wrap it in a wad of Monopoly money and never spend it. (laughs) (laughs) Right, just show people. Exactly. I'll be like, oh, I've got the check, and then flash my alleged hundreds in my money clip. And then when they turn around, I just vanish into the night like Batman. (laughs) That's messed up. (laughs) Well, you know who's cooler than Batman? Black Panther! And this Black Panther tie bar is sleek and elegant like the Wakandan King himself. It has this gunmetal gray finish that you have to be careful not to get fingerprints on because it's finely polished. I'm not sure what metal it's made from, but if I had to guess, I'd say vibranium yeah (laughs) i believe it it does kind of look like that feels like it too i like the black panther face that's on it i have to admit i've never owned a tie bar before but i've always wanted one because whenever i wear a tie it always ends up crooked or loose yeah like the thinner end of the tie like never stays hidden behind the front part of the tie Exactly. Or my tie always ends up in my soup or something. So I've enjoyed using this because it keeps my tie together and keeps it attached to my shirt. Very functional accessory, functional and stylish. Oh geez, I need to get me a DC one. Thankfully, like our listeners, I can use promo code dual 15. That's D U E L one to get 15% off any purchase at cufflinks.com through 2020. So go visit their site and check out their awesome Marvel and DC stuff. And while you're there, don't forget to send us a message with what item you thought was the coolest so you can enter our contest before November 15th. Yeah, not too many people have entered yet, so make sure you are one of those people. It's so easy to enter. Thanks to Cufflinks.com for sponsoring this episode. And now let's get back to the main event and discuss the 2015 Fox movie Fantastic Four. All right, the 2015 version of Fantastic Four, also known as Fant4Stick because of the film's marketing material, was the second attempt by 20th Century Fox to get a Fantastic Four franchise going. If you guys have listened to the podcast, you know that we've already reviewed the 2005 version of Fantastic Four and Fantastic Four Rise of the Silver Surfer. None of these movies have been fantastic, but this movie overall might suck the most out of all of them. I haven't been excited to review this film since we started this podcast. Most superhero films are enjoyable to talk about even if they're bad, because they're laughably bad, and the films at least retain some semblance of fun. Like, we had a great time tearing apart X-Men Origins, Wolverine, and Steel, but this movie is not just poorly written and made, it's also aggressively dull. It's so astoundingly meh that it's hard to even have fun ripping it to shreds. Which is kind of surprising to me in a way, because yes, I had heard so many horrible things about this film, and I knew it was going to be sort of off-brand. But to me, it almost kind of sounded like a darker, grounded approach to the Fantastic Four. And that's what DC has been doing with their characters. So I kind of saw this as the DC version of the Fantastic Four. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that. That's why this movie sucks so much. <laughs> I'm not going to lie, seeing this movie for the first time today, I was thinking to myself, "Well, oh, this kind of makes me understand why people hate Man of Steel. Because it's so off-brand and it's so needlessly realistic that how could you get any kind of enjoyment out of it if you're a fan of the character or characters? Well, the difference between Man of Steel and this movie is that, yes, they might be a little bit off-brand, but Man of Steel was also a well-made, well-written film for what it was. Fantastic Four is both off-brand and shitty. (laughs) Like, even from their approach, the main thing that's wrong with this film is its tone. The movie essentially is the dark, gritty reboot of the Fantastic Four, a franchise that, like Superman, has never been characterized as dark or gritty. And I won't say the Fantastic Four should never be adapted this way, because the characters are still versatile enough to hold up. And I think the trailers to this movie showed real promise, but this movie was not done well, and taking this approach was always going to lead to an uphill battle from the get-go. Because you're going against the essence of the characters, the Fantastic Four are a tight-knit family with bantering and bickering and laughter and feelings. Not this group of boring office colleagues, essentially, in this film. Right. The whole premise of the gritty reboot is to appeal to audiences who prefer their stories more grounded in reality and adult-oriented. For some franchises that works, like Nolan's Batman trilogy... But I think the MCU has shown that these stories work best when they adhere to the tone and spirit of the source material because that is what has endured for decades. Thank God Marvel got the rights back to the Fantastic Four. It's the franchise I'm most excited to see what they do with because, you know, we've seen good X-Men films. We had a great Daredevil TV show. Now it's time for the Fantastic Four to be treated with the respect and love they deserve. I don't want any more superhero films made by people who don't even like superheroes. And do you think that was the case here? Yeah, I mean, the writer of the film has gone on the record saying that he didn't think Josh Trank really even liked the characters. The badness of this movie is largely due to the -the behind-the-scenes drama during the making of the film, where a major portion of the movie was reshot by the producer, Simon Kinberg, which led Josh Trank to essentially disown the movie. I don't want to get too much into the production, though, because I think the movie should be evaluated on its own, and I also think the film has a lot of issues that don't stem from the behind-the-scenes stuff. I mean, you could tell there's some bad decision-making, even from the conception phase. Like the thing with no pants? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> even worse than that, thing with no dick. Like, how tragic can you make the character? <laughs> oh, jeez. Now, the Fantastic Four have always been one of my favorite Marvel teams, largely due to 1. Their cool powers. They have a compelling mix of abilities that are well-balanced for any threat. 2. Their imaginative stories. The explorative nature of the team takes them on crazy adventures that other heroes rarely go on, from the microverse, to the edge of outer space, to other dimensions. They fought the strangest beings in nearly every setting imaginable. 3. I like him for their interpersonal relationships. The fact that the characters are all bound together by blood, marriage, or unbreakable friendship leads to interactions that are much more intimate, joyful, funny, and times more devastating than your standard superhero teams. And four, because I wanted four reasons, there <laughs> is a magic to the Fantastic Four comics that embodies the best of the medium as escapist fantasy that's immersive and joyful and wondrous and fun. This film is none of those things. I was gonna say yeah well I guess you would have really hated this film because your list there were not evident in this film. Yeah it was just a mess on every level especially the story. There were a lot of issues with the story in this movie. A lot of people cite its departure from the source material as being a problem but the story actually was a pretty faithful adaptation of the ultimate Fantastic Four comics where Young Reed developed a teleporter he showed at a science fair and met Ben in middle school and was recruited into a think tank for prodigies by Franklin Storm, where he met Sue, Johnny, and Victor, and they teamed up on a project that would transport matter into the negative zone dimension. All of that was in The Ultimate Books. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, Reed in The Ultimate Books became like the ultimate villain, though. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. I, I could totally see this version of Reed in this film becoming a villain. Yeah. Yeah, the movie's just so dark. It's, it's not a huge stretch. Pun intended? <laughs> now... I do prefer the 616 universes, Fantastic Four Origins, where they went out into space and got bombarded by cosmic rays. It's not ideal that 20th Century Fox decided to adapt the Ultimate comics here, but it's understandable given that they didn't want to rehash what came in the previous franchise. What I can't understand is how the movie tripped into its own third act. The film is basically all set up in exposition, not taking any real time for the character development and relationship building that you would expect for a group of characters to act and function as a team by the time the final threat came. Oh, absolutely. When they went to like the one year later, I was like, what the fuck? (laughs) Exactly. They didn't feel like a unit in that Planet Zero battle. They felt like acquaintances, except for maybe Reed and Ben, but even their relationship was kind of rocky at that point. Zing! even Sue and Johnny, who were family, felt estranged or something. The yeah. script never gave the team a foundation. They were built on quicksand. And trying to shove some last-minute banter and bonding in the 25th hour in the final scene of the movie was way too little, way too late. You know, when they see their new facility at the end. I think we should have a team name. <laughs> Wait, say that one more time. Fantastic. Fantastic. It's like maybe they thought that this movie would get a sequel and they could save all the character and team building stuff for then, but it's like, too late motherfuckers, they already fought and defeated Doctor Doom and no one gave a shit. Say what you want about the 2005 Fantastic Four franchise, at least I would have felt something if Chris Evans or Michael Chiklis or Jessica Alba got killed by Doom. In this movie, I felt nothing for anybody, I barely knew them. And that's not to say that any of the characters died in this movie, but if they did, I wouldn't have cared. Definitely didn't care about Doctor Doom. I agree with that. Also comparing this movie to the other franchise, those movies had great special effects. Silver Surfer looked amazing. The Human Torch looked cool. Invisible Woman's powers were technically well done. This movie almost felt like a step back from all of that. And it came out a decade later. What really bothered me was Suze, especially. Because her stuff is supposed to be invisible, and yet it's glowing blue. I was like, no, no. (laughs) No. Yeah, this movie's visual effects were a little bit all over the board, but also underwhelming. You know, I was underwhelmed in a film where you're supposed to be really blown away by the nature of their spectacular powers. A bad movie can save itself somewhat if the visuals are impressive enough, like look at Iron Man 3 for instance, but this movie couldn't even deliver on that. It was so hellbent on taking itself seriously, it's like it didn't want to be exciting. Yeah, I know like some directors often tout verisimilitude when it comes to this kind of stuff, because you also can't approach this stuff thinking or being aware of its corniness. Right. Which is why movies like Richard Donner's Superman or Wonder Woman work, but those movies also aren't like up their own asses with the gritty reboot tone, you know? (laughs) Exactly, exactly. We've vilified this movie a lot. I do want to mention something that I did like about the film, which was its cinematography. I thought it was really well done and cinematic, and it's interesting because the video quality makes it look like a better film than it actually is. If nothing else, Fantastic Four has the appearance of a well-made movie, and sometimes I wonder if that confuses people into thinking it's better. Yeah, the opening kind of like flashback when Reed and Ben were younger kids, it almost reminded me of something like Super 8 or something like that. The cinematography wasn't that good of quality, but it was approaching it. Yeah. And the other thing I liked about this movie were its actors, not necessarily for their performances in this movie, but there's no denying that this cast is incredible and they deserved and could have delivered a much better film. There was so much potential here and it frankly disgusts me what a waste of talent this was. But let's talk about the cast in our character breakdown. Let's start off with Reed Richards, a.k.a. Mr. Fantastic, who is played by Miles Teller. Now, Miles Teller is actually a damn good actor, and I I think he's actually the best thing about this movie. He tries to carry it as much as he can, but there's only so much acting can do to revive a failure of a story. Yeah, I think he was cast in this after Whiplash, and I loved Whiplash. That was a great film. So I was actually really excited to hear when he was cast as Reed. Yeah, he brings an intelligence to the role for sure. It's a subdued performance with a lot of subtlety, except for the end battle scene where he basically just (laughs) yells what's happening. Like, it's pulling us into the other dimension. It's converting matter into energy. It's like, oh my God. They should have been like, why are you yelling this at us? (laughs) We can see that. We are all so smart. Now Reed's arc in this film revolves around his desire for his work to make a difference. Allegedly, his goals align with the Baxter Foundations, wherein they believe that teleporting to another dimension will give them access to new energy resources or something. But we never see that he has any real humanitarian goals, only that he likes making scientific achievements. In the course of this film, he learns that his projects can have negative effects, and he tries to help his friend Ben, and he succeeds in stopping Doctor Doom from destroying Earth. And that's pretty much it. There's no major insightful arc for any of these characters, including Reed. Yeah, I mean, it would have been interesting if they would have established like in the one year later scene that he was on the verge of a cure or something like that, because then the character would have had some like redemptive quality for making the decision to be the first ones to go into the Negative Zone or, or Planet Zero, I guess. Yeah. Was it the Negative Zone? In the Ultimate comic books, they went into the Negative Zone which I think they should have done in this movie. But in the movie, they just called it Planet Zero, which was weird. Yeah, that is weird. But no, because he didn't have that arc, because, you know, he made the promise that he was going to save people and then didn't follow through on that. He felt like an incomplete character. They all did. They were all so empty. Yeah. And at the end of the movie, I'm like, why are you being nice to him all of a sudden? Like, don't you remember that he like abandoned you guys and then did nothing? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, at least in the previous Fantastic Four films... Reed learned the importance of devoting less attention to his work and more to the people he cares for. Like, even those movies had some insight to them. Here, it really should have been that, you know, actions have consequences. But there's no point in this film where he actually internalized that. Right. You know, it's kind of like Peter Parker's lesson. With great power, or in Reed's case, great ingenuity and intellect, comes great responsibility. It was just like, oh no, I did this bad thing, I'm going to run away, oh, I'm forced to come back, hey, let's fight the bad guy. Exactly. (laughs) It was a partial story. But while we're in the character breakdown, do you have any notes about the costumes of the characters? What did you think of those? I didn't understand why they made them black for this film. Like how more depressing could you get? I did like the springs on Reed's suit though. I'm not going to lie. Each of their costumes had like their own like little components to them. that kind of made sense for helping the character deal with their powers. Yeah, Reed had the springs and Johnny had the vents that would let him vent out the heat, and Sue had those lenses that would give light readings. I thought the decision to make the costumes control the powers a little bit strange, but I guess it was a way to express their importance without going down the unstable molecules route. Yeah, all of those components kind of made the costumes seem like they were a crutch. Like these characters aren't Iron Man. They don't need to rely on their suits to use their power. Right. So that was kind of annoying. I missed the four on the suits but I guess it makes sense that they wouldn't have them considering they didn't get named until, you know, the credits start rolling. Let's talk about Susan Storm, a.k.a. Invisible Woman, who is played by Kate Mara. Now, Kate's acting style is also subdued and very similar to Miles in that she does more with less. However, she's barely given anything to do, and because of that, she comes across as very dull, pretty boring, and devoid of any real character. What do we learn about her in this movie? We know she's good at spotting patterns... She doesn't want to be a soldier for the government. And what else? She doesn't like Dr. Doom. Yeah, that's true. And kind of likes Reed. I don't know. I was actually kind of surprised at the lack of romance in this film. Yeah, it was clear about how she felt about her brother, too. I seriously doubt actually she has any feelings at all for Reed. They had like negative chemistry, if that's a thing. I mean, unless being a dick to each other is what? She flicked his ear and he was like, why would you do that? (laughs) I guess that's flirting. I don't know. That would just piss me off. If somebody (laughs) tried to flirt with me like that, I'd be like, fuck off! (laughs) The Fantastic Four has one of the few married couples in superhero comics. They shouldn't be afraid of having Sue fall in love. It's part of the character. Yeah, some women choose to be strong and independent, and some absolutely go for that romantic connection. And Sue in the comics has always been the latter. She and Reed are made for each other, and they're the patriarch and matriarch, really, of the Marvel Universe. Let's move on to Johnny Storm, a.k.a. The Human Torch, who was played by Michael B. Jordan. Another great actor, another decent performance hamstrung by a weak script with weak characterization. I'm so glad that Michael B. Jordan got another shot in the genre as Killmonger in the Black Panther film, because he was so good there. And here, he at least gets some character moments, like his drag race scene. It was nice that they set him up as a mechanical engineer who liked souping up his car. After the Planet Zero incident, Johnny is basically regulated to telling others that he wants to use his powers to fight. But it's uncertain exactly what he wants to fight for. Like, is he taking what he feels is a moral stance to volunteer for his country and its agenda? Or does he just really like the thrill of flying and blowing things up? Like, why does he want to be a soldier? What motivates him toward that direction? It seemed like it was just a rebellion against his father. Which doesn't seem like a good reason, you know? It seems like the character was smart enough to not have that be the only reason. Now, in the comics, we know that Johnny actually likes having his power. And maybe for this film, this was really the only way he was going to be able to cut loose and use it. Which can be perceived as kind of a shallow reason for becoming a soldier. Yeah, you just want to shoot a gun. So if they did go that route with this film, they would have to give him something to make him a little bit deeper. But I mean, it wasn't really an issue because, again, the movie just didn't care to explore any of that. Let's move on to Ben Grimm, a.k.a. The Thing, played by Jamie Bell. This character is such an anomaly. It's weird because I really like Jamie Bell. He's an interesting actor, and he reminds me of an older Tom Holland. And it's too bad that this film wasn't any good to set up a larger franchise for him. But out of the Fantastic Four, Ben was the least developed. It's hard to even say if he had any character other than guy who stands next to Reed and guy who gets upset at Reed. He barely wanted or cared about anything other than getting cured, but even at the end, his position on his deformity was, who knows? He was just so one-dimensional. It's hard to even say that Jamie Bell was The Thing, because there was nothing in his performance that told me that that was Jamie Bell. You know, at least when Michael Chiklis played The Thing in the previous Fantastic Four films, I could see that that was Michael Chiklis. You know, the actor brought some humanity to him. But the fact that they went with full CGI for this role, I think was a huge mistake because you lost so much of the character. Or at least they could have gone with better facial motion capture. But that would be hard to do with this rock monster character. But you're right, you do lose a lot of his performance once he becomes the thing. It kinda seemed early on in the film that they were setting up like a really interesting character. You know, he suffered abuse from his older brother, didn't seem like he came from the most stable of households, but they didn't do anything with that. Yeah. He was almost a non-entity later on in the film. Even in the end battle, he's not even like really gunko about fighting doom. He's just like, it's what I do. <laughs> it's like <laughs> How dull can you get? Seriously. Eh, may as well. <laughs> Let's get into Victor Von Doom, a.k.a. Dr. Doom, who was played by Toby Kebbell. Now, Dr. Doom was actually given probably the most development, not that it really did him any good. We know he was very prideful in regards to his intelligence. He was very possessive of Sioux, very anti-authority. He didn't really trust any government entity and saw from a mile away that they wanted to use his research for military purposes. He was very pessimistic of society, believing those in power had destroyed our world, and he sought to build a new Earth where only he remained. Comparatively, that's a lot of development and a solid foundation, but there was no building on any of that setup. After returning from Planet Zero as a glow-in-the-dark crash test dummy, he was just a (laughs) full-on villain with vague-ass powers. Right. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably like the worst Marvel villain outside of like Cloud Galactus that I've ever seen on screen. He didn't play into like the central conflict at all. You know, whatever the central conflict was, I'm not even sure. He just kind of appeared out of nowhere, literally at the end of the film and just started killing people for like no reason. He could have just been like, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to go back. No, <laughs> he had to destroy the whole planet yeah. for some reason. Now, I'm sure spending a year alone surviving in an inhospitable environment would no doubt change a man. But we should have seen some of that. To just have him pop up at the end with a minimal dialogue and start destroying the planet is a terrible disservice to the story and the character. It made this version of Doctor Doom even more empty than Julian McMahon's version from the previous franchise. Which is kind of sad because Toby Kebbell is a good actor. He's a really good actor. Yeah. And it was kind of heartbreaking to see him kind of wasted in this role. Again, when he becomes Doom, he loses all of his humanity. You don't even know if it's that actor playing that role. Yeah. It's just weird to see. The character design was horrible. It was really bad. Seeing the movie for the first time this morning, what did you think his powers were? It looked like he had telekinesis and like terraforming of Planet Zero. Really, it just seemed to be telekinesis. Well, he also had those energy force fields, I guess. Well, I mean, that could be telekinesis too. Yeah. I don't know. Technopathy? I mean, he looked like a robot and he like booted up the transporter without doing anything physically. Yeah. Was his head exploding power part of the telekinesis too? I mean, sure. It was an interesting power set, to say the least. I still don't get why 20th Century Fox was so afraid of the concept of Latveria. Yeah, we've never really gotten a satisfactory look at Dr. Doom the Monarch. Yeah, and honestly, when this movie ended, it just made me appreciate your pitch that you gave for our patrons on a Fantastic Four film so much more, because a majority of the film takes place inside Latveria. Yeah, I just want to see Emperor Doom. I I can't wait to see that. (laughs) At some point, probably. Let's move on to Franklin Storm, who was played by Reg E. Kathy. Now, Reg was a phenomenal actor, rest in peace. His role as Dr. Franklin Storm was really the glue that held the team together, assembling them and serving as the guiding force for the narrative. I could tell he really cared about his students and family and about making the world a better place. In a better movie, this would have been Reed's role. The metaphorical father of the Fantastic Four's family dynamic was prevented from being so because the story already had its father figure in Franklin Storm. So while I appreciate Reg's performance, I'm reminded again that the approach to the film was essentially ass. Yeah, I was kind of surprised to see him in this film. I didn't know he was in it because he wasn't in any of the marketing material from what I remember. When I saw him on screen, I was like, oh, it's Luke Cage's father. (laughs) That's right. Yeah, he also played Luke Cage's father in the Netflix show. Which is pretty interesting, because it almost feels like Luke Cage is now like Susan and Johnny's older brother. You're right when you say that he was the father figure of the group. Which just makes me think how nonsensical it was to have Reed run away. Like, Franklin cared about the team, and he stayed with them. Was trying to help them out behind the scenes, you know, that's what a team leader does. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's almost like they were just expecting a sequel to set that up for Reed. Yeah, the whole thing at the end where they're like, we're in charge. (laughs) We fucked up big time. And yet we're still going to get a huge-ass building. I I don't know. That was ridiculous. Yeah. I was going to say, let's move on to Dr. Harvey Allen, who was played by Tim Blake Nelson, because I have notes about him. But honestly, it's a rehash of the same notes above. You know, great actor, wasted. So who cares? I'm baffled, really, as to why the movie had a military presence to begin with. The Fantastic Four were never used as military weapons in the books. And their whole collective arc in this movie really focused on getting out from under military control, which is so weird. Like, who wrote this? Yeah, the whole film came across as very, like, anti-government, anti-military, anti-establishment. And I guess that's not a bad thing, because I'm sure scientists want to see their work done for the benefit of humanity and not just to create weapons. But it did feel a little bit misanthropic. Like, society as a whole would not have their best interests at heart. Yeah, especially with Doom's views that he may as well destroy this planet because of the way it was going. Yeah, it's nihilism. I think nihilism is just like probably the worst motivation you could have for a character, particularly a villain. It just makes them so uninteresting. I mean, it did work for the Joker in The Dark Knight. Yeah, but I mean, Heath Ledger's Joker had philosophical discussions backing that up. That's true. Yeah, isn't it great when you actually get to see and hear the motivations of your characters? What a concept. Like as if that's, you know critical to making a good film. <laughs> <laughs> all right, now that we've gone through all the characters, let's go into the story highlights More than once, actually.
0: Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The movie starts off as young Reed Richards befriends Ben as he builds a teleporting device in his parents' garage. Seven years later, the two present their transporter to the judges at a school science fair where they're approached by Franklin Richards and his daughter, Sue. This is where I started having problems with the movie because I'm like, why the hell are these 30 year olds competing against these eight year olds? Like in the comics, Reed had like three PhDs by age 18. I guess Franklin was just kind of like going around to different science fairs, scouting for intelligent minds. I mean, I'm sure he had heard about Reed's invention or something through the internet. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know how they found him. That's a good question. Now Franklin offers Reed a scholarship and moves him into the Baxter building where Reed meets Victor and Johnny. They build their transporter and successfully send the world's fakest looking chimp onto planet zero. Seriously, like they couldn't get a real chimp to sit in like a capsule. <laughs> That's all the chimp had to do. <laughs> this movie was made like how long after Rise of the Planet of the Apes and the CGI was that bad. No excuse. No excuse. Yeah, especially considering that it's the same studio, you know? That's probably why they did it. They're like, eh, we don't need to get a real chimp. We have a whole bunch of CG ones. (laughs) And then, like, it didn't get fully rendered for the final film. They're like, fuck! (laughs) The government is impressed with their work and makes plans to send trained explorers to the other dimension, and that pisses off the group because they built the transporter and felt they should be the first to use it. So then they get drunk and do that. Yes, they call up Ben and decide to take the transporter for a joyride onto Planet Zero. That was kind of like a weird catalyst. Alcohol was the reason that all this bad stuff happened. Let that be a lesson to you kids. (laughs) I actually thought that the scene where they were drinking and sharing stories about how they didn't want to become the people who built the moon lander. That was one of the film's only decent attempts at character building. I mean, I never really considered the fact that maybe the people who built the moon lander also wanted to be the ones who landed on the moon. I mean, by their logic, all shipbuilders want to be boat captains and all plane builders want to be pilots. I don't know if that quite holds up. It's drunk talk. It's all drunk talk. <laughs> so while on Planet Zero, they accidentally set off an environmental reaction that apparently kills Victor and nearly kills the rest before Sue helps them transport back. Now, I thought this Planet Zero scene was actually one of the best parts of the movie. I thought it was weird. That, like, these intelligent scientists would not know that they shouldn't be sticking their hands in some weird glowing electrical green goop. Right? (laughs) Like, that should be, like, Science 101. If you ever visit an alien landscape, don't stick your hand in the damn acidic-looking green goop. Like, it could be fucking lava. And allegedly, these are smart people, but you have, like, Victor, like, freaking teabagging the green acid and setting off this, like, volcanic eruption. Yeah, it was like the smarter they were supposed to be on Earth, the stupider they were on Planet Zero. (laughs) It was also weird how Johnny Storm didn't want to go down the rock face. In terms of character, Johnny's probably the most adventurous out of all of them. So you think he would be the one that would want to go down and explore. And perhaps it would be Ben that would stay up top and be the anchor. That's true. Yeah. I did think it was kind of weird in their justification for why Ben became the rock creature was because he was bombarded by rocks while he was in the capsule because the door couldn't close all the way. I think that actually looked kind of silly on screen. Well, Johnny got his flame powers because there was an explosion that erupted into his capsule. Yeah, that worked. That was actually kind of frightening when that happened. Yeah, the alien environment combined with their explosive return back to Earth gave Reed, Ben, Sue, and Johnny powers, which is first discovered in absolutely the best scene in this film when you see Reed in his broken explorer's outfit and he looks up and he sees Johnny burning alive and he hears Ben calling out to him from the rubble. He tries to crawl over to Ben but his leg is trapped. He manages to crawl over and he looks back and he sees that he's stretched this entire way. It was like this body horror moment that felt like it belonged to a better movie I think. Yeah I've often heard this film described as having horror elements like it was almost like a horror approach to Fantastic Four. This was the only time I kind of got that sense. It was a cool scene. It was really cool. The four are taken to a government research facility and studied. Reed escapes, promising Ben that he'd return with a cure. One year later, Ben, Johnny, and Sue are being trained to use their powers in military combat, while Franklin Storm tries to rebuild the transporter to return to Planet Zero and find a cure. They need Reed's help, so Sue tracks Reed down and Ben captures and brings him in. Reed's capture scene was pretty cool. Like the whole like jungle scene. Yeah. That was probably like the best display of his powers, I think, in the film. Yeah. Reed resequences their teleportation procedure so they can send scientists to the other dimension. So the scientists go to planet zero and they are approached by Victor, who survived, and they bring him back to Earth. I do have one question. Yeah. Where did Doom get his like weird blanket from? (laughs) it was not a part of his suit right Uh, no it wasn't part of his suit um i don't think it was the american flag that they brought with him because that would just be weird it looked like it was just like this random old beat-up shawl that he maybe found somewhere out in the negative zone and just grew really attached to it was the weirdest look for dr doom like it wasn't even a cool cloak like whoever saw that in concept art was like yes this it's like what were they thinking I think they were going for like a hobo look, like hobo alien god. And that was their first mistake. (laughs) Victor uses his powers to destroy the research facility, and he uses the transporter to open a wormhole to planet Zero that begins pulling in matter from Earth that he converts into energy to use to, I guess, terraform the other dimension into a new Earth. The Fantastic Four are pulled through the wormhole, and they try to defeat Doctor Doom separately, but they're easily stopped. They re-huddle and combine their powers to more effectively fight Doom, and they defeat him and destroy his energy converter. What did you think of this end battle? I did like how Reed showed to be like the most capable of like evading Dr. Doom's attacks. I just couldn't get over the fact that, like we mentioned earlier, Reed was just yelling all of this different like exposition to everyone. (laughs) It was so ridiculous. And I'm still not sure how he was able to deduce everything off the cuff. Yeah, like how Doom was the source of this power beam and that in order to stop the beam, they had to stop him. Yeah, it's like, the beam's still going, so he must still be alive. It's like, why are you saying this? How do you know? It was just so rushed. So rushed. Yeah, if I had to describe this end scene in one word, it would be rushed. The four come back to Earth in the closing wormhole and they tell the military that they won't work for them and they quit. But also if they could get access to their own research facility, that would be awesome. Yeah, I guess they're like government employees now. Or like the government works for them. I I have no idea. But they do get their own building, not the Baxter building, and they decide to call themselves the Fantastic Four. That's the end of the movie. It really makes me wonder what could have been with Josh Trank's original vision. Like, would it have been better? Would it not have been better? What would have changed? What would have been different. A few days before the film's release, I know Josh Trank got on Twitter and essentially, you know, disowned this film, which apparently cost this movie like millions of dollars in Lost Box Office revenue. Yeah. It's hard to say. I don't think that Josh Trank's instincts were right at all for this movie. I do think that Simon Kimberg from his interviews seemed to have a better grasp of the classic nature of the Fantastic Four and what their appeal is in the comics. Uh, so I think he tried to do what he could to salvage this. Again, I think Josh Trank just wasn't a fan of the characters and was experimenting, basically. But it's hard to say, who knows. If you guys want to see a good movie by the director, though, definitely check out Chronicle, because that's a solid superpowers movie. Do you think Disney Plus will ever release a Trank cut? Hell no. (laughs) No way. And please nobody get that hashtag trending on Twitter. Hashtag release the Trank cut. (laughs) We'll see if Disney caves. We'll see what Disney does with this franchise. I'm really excited. But that does it for this review. In all, the movie had very few redeeming qualities. I do think in terms of cinematography, it looked good. And the cast was talented despite having very little to do. So in all, I give this movie two stars, which is actually less than both Rise of the Silver Surfer and the 2005 Fantastic Four film. I think that makes sense. At least those older films were a little bit more on brand. This one not only was poorly made, but was further removed from what fans love about the Fantastic Four. So yeah, I think two stars is a fair rating. So yeah, let us know what you thought about the movie by writing to us at dynamicduelpodcast at gmail.com or by visiting us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can find links to all of our accounts by visiting our website dynamicduel.com. Don't forget guys to visit cufflinks.com not only because you can get 15% off any order with code DUAL15, but also because we're running a contest with them and you guys could win your very own superhero ties just by going to the site, checking out their Marvel and DC gear and letting us know which is your favorite. Also be sure to check out Hulu's original series Hellstrom, which is based off of the Marvel Comics character. All 10 episodes are currently streaming on Hulu, so make sure to binge that for Halloween. Our next episode is episode 200. It's a big team match. We've already done Justice League versus Avengers. We've done Titans versus X-Men. Now it's time for our third big matchup, a big milestone episode where we find out who would win between the Fantastic Four and the DC team, the JSA. Be sure to tune in for that, guys. It's going to be huge. We want to remind everyone again to please subscribe to our show if you haven't, or please leave us a rating or a review on your platform of choice. Sharing the show on social media or in person is also a big help for us. But that does it for this episode. We want to give a big thanks to our executive producers, Ken Johnson, Jace Crump, John Starosky, John Spees, and Isaiah Bethune for helping make this podcast possible. And we'll talk to you guys next week. Up, up, and away, true believers